It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. I'm uh, live in studio today and looking forward to having two great guests uh, join me. Um, you know, this show is really about talking to our guests, learning from them, and and hopefully, you know, digesting something that can help us with our talent, with the people that we are managing, and, and hopefully uh, inspiring and, and, and coaching and helping grow, but also trying to figure out what are those, you know, unique things that exceptionally talented people are doing, right? What are the what are their secrets? What are the things they're thinking about? What are they reading? Uh, and that, this is really that, that show where we bring all that together and have those conversations with people that we have... Either I've met at shows, or we've I, I've met through uh, my travels and, and consulting, or through my business, um, or just people, the great people that have a great, uh, you know, a super uh, reputation on LinkedIn, and maybe we've been able to find them and and then ask them to be on the show. So uh, today is a good example of that, and really looking forward to hopefully hearing some more great stories and picking up a few new uh, things that we can think about inside of our work. Um, a lot of the best stories over the last five years of doing this show uh, have shown up in my uh, book, uh, the best uh, bestseller called The Power of Company Culture. And just this month, the Audible version has been released. So I'm really excited. Uh, if you prefer to listen to your books like I do, you can go uh, and get it on Audible now. So, And if you like uh, traditional read, there's no problem with that. Uh, we got the Kindle and the regular versions there for you as well. So check out Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Um, it's available uh, around the world. So um, we are live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with uh, rare exception. And um, you know, a lot of you come in live and we appreciate that. And uh, we, we try to do as much as we can for our live audience by live tweeting um, and try to keep that conversation going. So if you have something you want to add, you have a question, you have a thought, um, go to, go to Twitter at people G2. There's also a hashtag talent talk. You can follow my producer. Mike tries to pop in all the best little one-liners and tidbits as we go through the show today. And that's a great place for you to interact with us and let us know what you think. Um, but most of you actually come in after the fact. Uh, you, you actually, instead of listening to us live, most of you come in on iTunes or listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, there's so many different platforms now pushing different podcasts, uh, but we're certainly available on all of those. And when you find us, please subscribe. Please, uh, you know, make sure you follow us and check out all our shows. We have over 10,000 of you a day uh, listening to at least a show. So. Uh, really appreciate our audience out there being a part of the conversation and and uh, really uh, taking the time to to learn something today. So as we try to do every week. All right, let me get to my uh, guest now that we've kind of gone through the business. Uh, my my two guests today on the show will first will be uh, John uh, Bernatovich, uh, the founder of Willery, and then we'll bring in after the commercial break Charles Wilson, the executive director and CEO of the Southern California Water Coalition. He'll actually be joining me here live in studio, uh, which is a uh, Certainly the exception, not the norm here for us. Most of our people call in from around the country, around the world, but today we'll have someone in, in studio, so that'll be fun. But let's go ahead and get to my first guest. Uh, he's calling in, and there's absolutely no, nothing wrong with that, but uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Enjoy it. Appreciate the uh, opportunity and look forward to sharing my thoughts and getting your opinions on uh, this culture and talent topic. So look forward to it. Yeah, it should be fun. Let's uh, dive right into it. And I think the, you know, the first and most important question we asked our guests is, you know, tell us about you. What's going on with you and what does your company do? And kind of set up the context for us so we know where to start. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm a lifelong Northeast Ohioan. I live in Bath, Ohio, which is the, uh, I guess, summer home now for LeBron James, uh, formerly <laughs> the winter home for LeBron James. Right, so, right. Uh, sorry to see him leave and 
had off for uh, Big L.A., so um, lived here my entire life. Actually, I grew up in a small town called Doylestown, a uh, family of six, my parents and uh, brothers and sister. Uh, actually turned out in eighth grade. I uh, moved into uh, the community I live now, uh, so I came back and um, met my wife actually on the, the first day of school on the school bus, school bus ride home, so that's a pretty cool story for us. She I think I liked her before she liked me. I think that's how the story goes. At least the that's, one. That's usually how it goes. Yeah, yeah. At least that's how yeah. the wives always tell us how that's how it went, right? <laughs> yeah. This, this time it's true, though. So I have to admit, uh, I went to Kent. I'm actually a competitive golfer, and I, I got a scholarship to play golf at Kent State. And then I graduated from Kent and pursued a career in sales at ADP. And then after that, got into the executive search business and then formed a company that merged those two experiences together, my, my time at ADP in the HR tech and payroll space, as well as the executive search space, and formed Willery in 2010. And we are uh, the only staffing and consulting firm that's solely focused in HR and payroll. And we do three primary things. We focus on people, process, and technology, again, solely in HR and payroll. So we help clients find uh, the best talent for their HR and payroll departments, either through direct hire, like contingent search services, or we also do contract or interim-based uh, uh, temporary support, or we also can provide executive search services. And then our consulting practice, it does two very unique things. One is we do full uh, process improvement and transformation around HR operations, payroll operations. So you think of everything from employee life cycle, so from application to retirement. We help clients ensure that they're effective, that they're compliant, and that they're efficient in how they do those uh, various items within their organization. And then last but not least, we have a very robust uh, HR tech practice, which can help clients optimize their current HCM system uh, that they're on, or if they're unhappy and want to figure out how to navigate through the thousands of HR technology offerings that are out there, we have a vendor selection service um, that's, that's kind of state-of-the-art as well as very proprietary and provides a very unique uh, way for clients to ensure they, they're finding the right tech for their company. And then last but not least, we can help clients activate those new systems successfully, whether that be a functional, technical, or project management resource. So um, our, our kind of claim to fame is um, providing just high-quality resources focused in that HR and payroll arena with kind of a a holistic approach to the people process and tech. Well, I certainly know, uh, you know, our, our sort of very given and specific offering inside of that space that you're living in with background checks and drug testing and all that. I know it can be a challenge at times to, to be inside of that marketplace, and it is a crowded uh, space. So it's really glad, good to hear that you're able to offer some sort of, you know, uh, perspective and reference for your clients and trying to navigate. There's so many different offerings, so many different ways some really great offerings out there, but not necessarily ones that people would know about right off the bat, right? You just do a Google search and you might get the first 50, and what about the other 900 and 999 that might be out there? Um, so it, it can be a, a challenging space. And I think one of the first things I heard, uh, you know, sort of really talking about your very specific uh, recruiting, uh, you know, kind of scope. You're looking for HR and payroll people. And I, I'm not sure if I've heard that one before of anyone on our show, and that's really kind of fascinating. Um, but you know, before we kind of dive into anything around the company, uh, maybe on your, what you're specifically offering, kind of wanted to get an idea. You know, you worked for some big companies, you, you uh, have a experience in the space, but now then starting your own company, right? So the entrepreneurial component of it is where often sometimes people really fail, right? They they may understand how to do the work, they may understand the the space, but then when they have to actually be the boss or to run a company, it can be a challenge. Uh, was was that initially for you a challenge? So I, I was I was fortunate actually when I uh, made the decision to um, leave ADP, my company back in uh, that I worked for for ten years right out of college. So in two thousand five, I actually had started a business with a a friend. Um, we were doing something. I know you said you were talking with someone in the in the water business later. I actually have a water vending company that I still own today, and so I, I got a very um, unique experience in how to start a business with a partner who knew kind of the ins and outs of that that um, industry. So I was able to learn from him and uh, took a lot of those lessons and 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 form formulating the ideas that I wanted to come up with 
around forming Willery. So um, certainly the kind of lessons learned or trepidation that I had or things that I look back now kind of nine years in the rearview mirror is um, I don't know if I would have done it if I knew everything that I knew now, uh, not in a bad way. I just at the time when I started the business, um, I had a six-month-old, or just had a, a six-month-old daughter and a two-year-old son. So I literally went completely out on the limb um, with the support of my wife. Uh, at the same time, we did it in the middle of the recession. So um, that was really a, a kind of crazy time to start a company. Uh, so hindsight being 2020, I'm so thankful that I did it. But uh, I, I did it with somewhat of blinders on because I was just very determined to create something unique in the HR and payroll space. Uh, at the same time, I just was steadfast in my in the network that I had established in my sales and recruiting expertise that I just thought we could do it better than other companies that were out there, especially by digging into this niche in HR and payroll. I, I knew that no one was doing what we were doing. Uh, just a matter of uh, trusting myself and trusting my network and those that support me to be able to um, launch it off and get people to pay you for the services at the same time be able to stand behind the things that you do so um, I'm so thankful it's been a blessing for me uh, every step of the way now the firm is something I never thought it would have turned into in, in many great ways uh, but there certainly was some um, uh, ambitiousness um, some some stubbornness I'll say and just a uh, confidence in yourself to uh, to go try to make something happen uh, that you you feel very strongly that you could do right and, and I know so as you're you're starting this off and and whether it's ignorance is bliss or you just have the confidence and and focus to you know to go into that space and, and make it happen um, you know one of the things that can be a real opportunity for some people to challenge is to build a culture and uh, I know we also share this as well that, uh, you know, our workforces are completely virtual. We have remote teams. And so I'm curious to know is how, how have you been able to build your culture? How have you been able to, to do that in a way that uh, can be successful for you? And also, you, you guys have won some awards and, um, you know, it's been a good outcome. So what, what's sort of been your, your recipe for success there? Sure. Yeah. So first and foremost, virtual or not virtual, it's it's so critically important to hire really great people that fit your culture, right? Whatever that culture might be. So the people that you hire have to fit into that. Um, and I, I, I am a believer of fit culturally before skill and competency. Obviously, if you can get the combination of cultural fit and skill and competency, then you have kind of a no-brainer hire. So uh, those things are really important, as well as setting expectations with those new hires uh, about the virtual environment. Um, we want people running toward that, like having great interest in it, having a reason for it, uh, fitting into their personal life, professional life. Uh, when they scratch their head or look at you sideways that you work from home and don't understand it, uh, sometimes that can be a, a red flag for us. So we really want to evaluate that uh, they fit us and they have the appropriate skills or ability to learn those skills at the same time um, that, they're, that they're understanding what the dynamic of working from home would mean. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have been able to successfully build a process and structure and accountability around the things we want to make sure that our team members are doing. So we have, you know, really cool dashboards and kind of metric-based information so people can measure how, how good or bad or in the middle they're doing at any moment as it relates to the core functionality of their job. Uh, we also are a completely virtual kind of technology-based firm. So um, other than our laptops, we connect uh, to virtual environments through our applicant tracking system, through our CRM, through our marketing automation tool, through our full office suite is 100% virtual. So that allows us to communicate with folks um, through Skype, uh, through video, so through IMing. So there's a bunch of ways that we can talk with one another that doesn't necessarily mean we have to be in the same physical presence. And then probably the last thing I think is really important in virtual environments that I get this question a lot is how have you been able to build the culture? I think so hire great people, have the process and structure. But lastly, you got to get the people together physically uh, on occasion. I, I don't believe, at least in my experience, you can do all this and build something award-winning without 
individual person meeting another individual person, whether to give them a high five or a hug or to talk about their family. Uh, and it's interesting in the client meetings that we have together with team members or when we go to association events together or we travel to different kind of HR tech-based events or we have our bi-monthly kind of in-person meetings, uh, it feels a lot like high school reunion time for our team. Mm. Um, kind of absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I really believe in the fact of you, you have to, in order to have a successful virtual environment, you have to have a physical, like real experience with that individual so you can get to know them better um, right. uh, in, in intermixing that in with the, the, the virtual environment. Yeah, it's funny. We see that as well with our teams. And we sort of run a mix, right, where there's some teams that do get together on a maybe quarterly basis or things like that, especially sales and, and those departments. But our other teams where, you know, it doesn't really make sense for us to get them together any sooner than that, when we do have our annual holiday party, that's sort of the big, you know, you're right, it's like a high school reunion. Everyone's coming together. And even though they talk to each other every day, they see each other on Skype or Zoom or Slack or whatever it is every day, being physically in their presence has a di- is a, just a different thing. And it does bring them yeah, totally. uh, just a, a lot of joy, and it is a lot of the glue that kind of, I think, holds us together until the next time we're, we're, we meet again, you know. Um, so, so that's certainly a difference uh, when we compare a traditional brick-and-mortar company with a, with a remote one and having to think about those types of things. Is there anything else maybe specifically about managing people that might be a little bit different? Yeah, I think so. so the, I think the hardest part, um, at least you might think traditionally, is the observation that goes into managing people. So we have people that uh, do, do direct sales, that manage clients, that do consulting, that provide staffing support, marketing, uh, et cetera, right? And so in order for you to make sure that they're doing the job effectively, you got to have the right people, you got to make sure they have the skill, that you train them up on those skills, but then you have to observe them doing the job. You can't just let them be in their office and just you know assume that they're going to do that right. So uh, it's really important for our management team to be uh, involved in observing their people doing their jobs, uh, when whatever components they might they might be, and that that takes a little bit of different effort. Sometimes it's you know being on a joint conference call. Sometimes it's shadowing them. Sometimes it's physically going to their virtual office and and doing that in person. Uh, so that you can see and hear how they do that. That's that's a little bit harder than, um, you know, Steve and, and and Jim being on my team and having to sit down in their office right next to mine and hear them make a sales call or talk to a candidate about a job offer. Um, so the, the physical aspect of seeing them, observing them do it so you can appropriately coach them uh, is is probably the most unique challenge, in my opinion, uh, different than a brick-and-mortar environment. Yeah, and we've seen so many new tools come out for that, right? So it's, you know, in our CRM, or we can have uh, record calls, so maybe we're not on with them directly, but we can go back and listen later or, you know, be on a Zoom call with them. You, you have to find those ways to, to replicate some of that for some people. And yet, I have seen the opposite, right? Where when all we do is focus on the results and the outcomes, and we remove that, I need to observe you, I need to see you, uh, that they surprise us, right? They come out, and that right. you remove some of this uncomfortableness of someone's watching me, someone's standing over me. Hey, I can just go and try it like 50 ways and find the way that works for me, and then the results are, hey, this was effective. Um, for me, that's been the biggest surprise at how many people were able to do a better job on their own, given their own time and space, and just the, this is what I need the outcome to look like. Um, I need I need you to get five appointments this week, or I need to get, you know, whatever that thing is, um, how much, how well they've been able to do that, or rope in a peer or someone else that they're more comfortable with instead of maybe a manager standing over the top of them in a very, I don't know, sort of sort of scary or you know top sure. down sort of manner yeah i think no i think that's it. so so i agree with you there's obviously a ton of autonomy and we want them to think independently and kind of own what their job is at the same time i think if if the managers understand and know how to do that effectively you could probably have the best of both worlds right i don't want to necessarily think 
any of my team members feel like one of their managers is standing over their shoulder watching them do their job and kind of poke them when they don't. Uh, we want it to be collaborative and we want it to be interactive. I mean, just recently in the last two weeks, I've met with a handful of uh, my team members to get their opinion on how things are going in a particular department within our firm, and I've observed them doing their job, and um, it's gone very well, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm the owner, and I guess it could be intimidating to them. I guess I'm not necessarily, I'm intimidated as well because I, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. At the same time, we have a job to do, and, and my goal is to help them be as successful and great as they possibly can be. So um, just making it safe for them and setting the appropriate agenda and them understanding that we just want to see you do your job so you can, um, I can learn from you. At the same time, I might be able to give you some suggestions on how to do it just a bit differently or better. Yeah. We used to train people, um, you know, to do research, and it would take us usually about a month for before we were really ready to let someone be on their own because it's an important job, part of our job, and we want accuracy for our clients. But that was when we were mirroring them, right? We were watching every little keystroke and observing what they were doing and what screens they, what order they would go. And we are now, if we bring in somebody, it takes about 10 days, maybe eight, because we give them a set of things to do and we don't, we're not there. And we, t- and we give them right. videos and there's something about them do- figuring it out on their own <laughs> and I don't know what the psychology is. I probably should dive into it more. But we removed that, no, don't click that. No, don't go there. Don't, you know, the no, 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 no. Instead of this is, you know, practice doing this, and this is the result you should get. And then figuring that on their own somehow has really cut down our training times, which is really counterintuitive. Um, we, we should be faster yeah. having someone who knows what they're doing standing there telling them what to do. But I think what you're missing out is that learning process of... I'm going to try it. I'm going to fail. I'm going to try it. I'm going to succeed. And now I've learned it for myself, and I'm going to remember how to do it every time. Um, yeah. Especially of relying well, the power on of figuring out how to do things. I mean, I know you've had success in your business. My guess is necessarily you weren't given a exact recipe book yeah. how to, to build a successful company. And the same goes for parenting, right? Like, there's no <laughs> book on how to become a great dad, and, and either you figure it out or you don't. Um, and I, I think sometimes with the appropriate amount of support from like family or other business owners and those two examples I gave, you can accelerate your success in mm-hmm. my opinion. Uh, but at the same time, I'm totally with you. People, people want to be independent. Uh, they want to figure it out on their own. Uh, and those are the types of people that you want to work for you because you can't be everywhere all the time. Right. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool way to, to look at it and saying congrats to you on condensing your, uh, ramp up period for your new hires because that's always a challenging thing for us in our business for sure. Well, and the one thing I always remind people about is you know that's something we figured out for us, and that may or may not work for anybody else. But but what we did, which I think is important for people to think about, is we kept trying new things, kept trying new ways to do it, new, um, you know, way, and, and until we found something that was better than the way we were doing it before. Instead of just saying, "Well, this is the one way we've done it, the one way we know how to do it, and that's all that there is." Um, I think we're actively thinking about it took a month to bring somebody on board. That's too long. How do we get it down to three weeks? How do we get it down to two weeks? You know, how, what can we do to help get somebody out there faster? And it was just a matter of experimentation um, with with different times, different processes over a period of time. So I was just suggest to people try new things, try a new approach, come up with new ideas, you know, get information and data and find what works for you, because that's going to be different than maybe what works for me and my team. Yeah, great point. Yeah, great suggestion for sure. Are there any things that you're kind of focused in on right now for your, you know, your teams uh, that maybe is kind of top of mind for 2019? Well, I mean, from a standpoint of what we have focused on, we're we're trying to find uh, ways. We're, we're a people-centric business, right? So we don't have a widget maker or a software that does things kind of you know in in the process so we need our people to be as efficient and as effective as possible and we have either recruiters that are making placements um, on behalf of clients or we have consultants providing consultative support so we're actually uh, doing a couple things around uh, innovating and automating some of those consultative processes uh, of which we think will end up taking
taking us less time, which sounds kind of counterintuitive mm-hmm. for a uh, kind of uh, time and materials-based consulting firm. But we think as a result of it, we'll be able to scale that business more and, get, and give it to, to more companies than we can right at the moment. So uh, it'll take us less time, but we'll be able to do it to far more companies. So we're pretty excited about what that um, is is going to bring to the firm. That's we're we're looking actually at launching kind of a beta test on that sometime in the summer. And then uh, for me personally, I actually I'm I'm um, kind of going through this entrepreneurial ownership shift, uh, and I, I believe that it's, it's maybe a lot of owners have felt the same way. Um, in essence, you start a business to to be your own boss. Uh, to in essence be in control, uh, to I'll use this word of uh, to work for yourself, maybe not be held accountable or do whatever in necess- necessary you think you have to do as a as a business owner, right? Um, and as I've realized the the importance for me to scale my company, um, I have to think exactly the opposite of that. I have to think of um, relinquishing control and mm-hmm. trusting in my management team. Um, personally holding myself more accountable than anybody else within the organization, uh, leading by example in that way, and, build, and building structured processes that uh, can, in essence, scale the business. So, in essence, I'm, I'm working for my, my, my management team and my team, um, and they're holding me accountable every single day. And so, with that, I'm hopeful to be able to get uh, the most out of our people, and be able to scale and leverage the, like you said before, the things we've tinkered around with for the last nine years to make this firm successful. Um, that's the big, you know, thing that I'm focused on right now of of kind of getting out of their way, getting out of the center of the business, and letting my team do their thing, uh, so that uh, we can scale up the firm even more than what it has so far to this point. Well, sounds great, and I really commend you guys on everything you're doing. It sounds like you're on the right track, and uh, really excited. I'm going to learn more about your company. But how can if, if you know somebody else wants to learn more, and if they want to find out uh, how they can work with you or uh, get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to to learn more about your organization? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So first, you can check out our website. It's willery.com. W-I-L-L-O-R-Y.com. You can reach me at John, J-O-H-N, at willery.com. Again, that's W-I-L-L-O-R-Y.com. I'm on Twitter, which is John, J-O-H-N-B-E-R-N-A-T-O-V-I-C-Z. And uh, if you're into texting or you want to call me, uh, you can do that on 330-819-1126. Well, John, thank you so much for being a part of the show today and bringing us all your great insights on the leadership, remote work, uh, and culture. Hopefully we'll have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, we'll be right back with a quick commercial break, and we'll bring in my guest, uh, Charles Wilson. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news? Or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. I'm on the observation deck of the Empire State Building to demonstrate how much material waste management recycles. As North America's largest residential recycler, last year alone, waste management recycled 12.9 million tons. How much is that? Let's do the math. Carry the six. It's enough to fill this building more than 27 times. With experience like that, we're bound to have a program that can help your business recycle. Talk to Waste Management or visit thinkgreen.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, don't worry. This show will be turned into a podcast. We throw it up on iTunes. You can listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you just can't figure that out, well, you can always go to talentotradio.com. Uh, we have all of our shows there, and you can subscribe to Podbean and get alerted anytime we up, uh, upload a new show, which is generally about every week. So uh, let's go ahead and bring in my next guest. He's live here in studio. We want to welcome Charlie Wilson, the Executive Director and CEO of the Southern California Water Coalition. And uh, if you don't know what that is, I think we're going to find out in a minute. So uh, don't forget to uh, tweet your questions to at g 2 Use that hashtag Talent Talk or just follow along with our live tweeting and all the best uh, little tidbits that we come up with today. Uh, my, producer, my producer, Mike, will throw them up there. So, uh, Charlie, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks, Chris. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? What, what should we know about you? And then, of course, explain to us <laughs> what is the Southern California Water Coalition. Oh, so many things to say. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've it's been... only a 25 25- <laughs> So 20 minute show. All right, let me, let me just get started now. Uh, I've been in and around public policy for, you know, going on 30 years. Uh, found a mentor years ago that uh, really turned me on to the issue of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've had this sort of varied career with lots of unique opportunities to it where I have worked in the state legislature. I've done communications for uh, a state and United States senator. Got recruited into the electric utility business in, in just in time to do deregulation. Right. Uh, sp- <laughs> we all know how that worked out so very well here in California. Right. Um, and then from there, I, I kind of became really involved in, in things like infrastructure and very mm-hmm. passionate about infrastructure uh, in that uh, I, I had these lessons uh, taught to me that, uh, you know, infrastructure really is the skeletal backbone on which our economy and our communities thrive. And it's just something that stuck with me. And so I've, I've sort of developed this expertise in water and in energy, having served as an elected official, uh, done a variety of things. And when the opportunity presented itself uh, to retire out of the Edison Company three years ago, I took over uh, this nonprofit, Southern California Water Coalition, as their CEO and, and executive director as an opportunity really to extend sort of my skill set, my passion, my leadership mm-hmm. within the community, and to take that and, and bridge it into a wider regional and statewide public policy opportunity. So I've, the last few years with Everything happening in our political environment, not to get into particular political uh, uh, finger pointing, but I've had friends and, and, and colleagues and people who, uh, I guess, sort of take this approach that, you know, there's no, nothing good about government, right? This is sort of this general idea. Until suddenly something happens, like, I don't know, we're in a drought, right? And I think people then became very aware of these really old lessons that I remember learning when I went to the Hoover Dam about how water is is, is parsoned off and all of these sort of agreements and things and certain water goes here and there. And, and of course, people did their best back then to come up with what they thought was the best possible way to do that, not realizing that our state would grow as big as it did, our agriculture as big as it did. I mean, just so it's so complex, right? And so infrastructure has the most incredible impact on our lives. When it's working well, we ignore it. We have no sense it's there and don't don't appreciate it. And then when it's not working, of course, we're upset. It's exactly off. right. I don't want to think about it. And right. In fact, in particular, in California, I mean, if you do, as you think about it, we've created the fifth largest economy in the world Mm -hmm. on the backs of people that came before us that created water systems, electric systems, gas, transportation. I mean, there is a... Sewage, don't forget about the biggest problem. Well, you've got to bring the good stuff in, you've got (laughs) to take the bad stuff out. And, And all through that period of time, we created this expectation that it would be abundant and near free. Right. So not only do I not know where it comes from, I don't understand the value proposition once it comes to my house or my business, but I also really don't want to think about it, as you say, until the light switch doesn't work or until it doesn't come out of the faucet. In fact, I did some public p- opinion polling of my own a couple of years ago as we were talking about some things up in the Bay Delta. And literally in Southern California, I can point to you and say, do you know where your water comes from? And they will point to the sink. <laughs> and then when I ask them, do you know where the delta is? And they will say, well, yeah, that's my delta faucet. Right. And that's about the extent of which they really wanted to think about it until mm-hmm. something happened. There was a crisis, and we did. We went through six years of drought, the last drought, and I've been right. through a couple of them now in California. And that's what really kind of brings the opportunity into people's forefront, into their conscious thinking. Right. And so there's opportunity in that. Now we've been through a couple of years. We've had unprecedented rainfall and snow, this year being one of them. So the good news is it's top of mind. Bad news, it's top of mind. Mm -hmm. Good news, the state legislature's really talking about it now. Bad news, yeah, the legislature's talking about it. (laughs) And so the opportunity then is to be able to take 
a particular skill set, a particular coalition, a very broad-based coalition, mm -hmm. and how do you then engage elected leaders, regulatory leaders, people that actually are decision-makers, educate them, how do you educate them so they can make an informed choice? Yeah, and I think that's one of the big struggles, and especially if it's as big of a state as ours, as many people, as many representatives as we have, is not only helping, having them help maybe solve a problem, but making sure they have all the information they need to make the right decision. That's often the biggest complaint about from constituents is that they tried to make, tried to help, but they ended up just making the problem worse because they didn't have all the information. So let's maybe talk a little bit deeper about the Water Coalition itself. I know you guys rely on volunteers to serve on its board and its task force, and you write white papers, and you do all sorts of things to sort of help the, the cause overall. But what, what do you do as the executive director to keep maybe people motivated as a volunteer? I mean, we are talking about talent here, so let's kind of right. redirect it in the sense of, you, you know, you focus on a common purpose. Do you have a really we, strong whip? I mean, what do you do here? You, you, you actually begin with that common purpose. I mean, that's what the organization, it's 35 years old now. It came out of a political crisis back in there early 1980s. So there are people that were motivated uh, within the Southern California region back. Some of those people we stand on their shoulders as examples of great leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a natural inclination to come and say, you know what, this can't happen again. We've got to do better. So this coalition was created uh, back in the early 1980s. It has about 200 various members to it. In fact, it is the single broadest coalition around a single issue in the state that I'm aware of, and that's where it includes agricultural interests. Ag clearly cares about water. Right. No water, no food. Business, industry, care about water. Mm -hmm. You need it for economic growth and stimulus. You need it for the environment. The unions, the labor movement, they care because of the jobs that are associated with it. Obviously, water agencies care. They're invested. Cities, counties, uh, other public entities and other nonprofits all have some commonality. And so they're motivated to say there ought to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And within that broad coalition, then, we can talk geographically from Kern County to the Mexican border and literally from the coast to the state line about what is unique about Southern California and how does Southern California fit into the larger state whole, recognizing that over 50% of the state's population is south of Wilshire Boulevard. Right. So in Southern California has the votes, has the people, that's where you have to have decisions. You have to have people educating and coming forward to Sacramento, not having Sacramento step right. down. And, and maybe all the majority of it is down here, but the water's got to go through the top first, right? We're the last one of the well, last. Well, that's the that's the that's the dichotomy. The water's in the north, <laughs> and the people are in the south. Up up north, people see rivers and lakes, and they understand water. Here, because it's underground, it's in pipes, they right. don't get it. So the question then is, how do you take those motivated people, how do you then take more than half the state's population and then educate those elected leaders, those civic leaders, stakeholders, to make informed choice? That becomes mm -hmm. the challenge. So that's part of then how we then engage. I don't try to boil the ocean. I can't go out and meet with all 25, 30 right. million people in Southern California. i got to be very targeted. So we have very talented people, all of whom come to the table, but all of whom have to be motivated in their own right as to why are they there, why do they care, and then what is it that they personally get out of it. They all want to do the right thing. So what is it then we can help them facilitate by doing the right thing? So you said you know this, this phrase a couple of times that you know we can do better, and, and so maybe you could define what that means. Does that mean you know, are we looking for a great invention? Are we looking for a better way to, to, to take the salt water and turn it into regular water? Are we looking for a better way for all that water traveling north not to so much for it to evaporate out? I mean, is it talking about water conservation or is it like, yeah, yes to all of it, just a little bit of everything? All the above. Right. There is no silver bullet. There is no way that I can say, if I just did that one thing, all my problems would Well, I would heard if away. we didn't give water to the almond trees, then we would be, I'd be fine because they yeah, take I so love much. almonds. <laughs> <laughs> You know, again, yeah. people eat, and that's part right. of the state's economy. So it, it is a really, truly an all-the-above, and that's part of why a broad-based coalition, mm -hmm. everybody has a place. So we can talk about, you can always conserve. More importantly, you can use it more efficiently. The fact that we bring mm -hmm. water in Southern California from more than two to 400 miles away right. is something most people understand. I can use that more efficiently. There are other ways to get water here. 
you have to begin with bringing water from the north to the south. That is the base of on which everything else takes place. Then beyond that, where does ocean desalination play? It does, but it doesn't solve everything. Mm-hmm. Stormwater capture and then recycling has a huge potential, particularly in places like Orange County, where they set the world standard for how you do recycling. All of those components have a, a measured approach and a reasonable solution based upon hydrology, based upon your local conditions. What works in coastal Orange County or Los Angeles does not work in the Mojave, does not work on the sure. Colorado River. So you have to be able to take all of them to act independently, but still with a single purpose in mind, which is how do we solve the complex you know, interrelationship as opposed to just me. It's not a just me any more than I can say in business, if I solve my problem, then everything else is, is fine. Right, right. And I imagine it's always going to be, no matter how good we might get at this issue, there's always going to be an issue that has to be talked about and solved. Because the moment you forget about it is the moment it starts to be, everything starts to crumble and become a problem again. It, it is. And you, you sort of talked about it when you talked about the political environment that we're in. And the political environment is important. But I've noticed, you know, when I started my career, uh, it was back when Jerry Brown was just finishing governor the first time. Right. <laughs> and he came back around. Never in my political career did I think I would actually be in alignment with, let alone working on projects with him and his administration. And yet that's where I found myself in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Now you have new administration putting a different message to it, but looking at the water issue in a, even a larger context of what does this mean in terms of climate change? Whether you believe it or not, what the, what, what the, the, the result is, things are changing, and how do you meet that future need? Mm-hmm. Growing population, growing need for food, growing need for business and industry in a place where it's clearly changing because nothing remains static. Right, right. And that... It's uh, it'll be fascinating, and maybe we may not be around the next time it it some something major comes up or some major change. If if you know global warming or that change continues to happen, and what will will people have to do something different? Will they all have to move to somewhere else? Will they have you know? It's really fascinating what might happen a hundred years or two hundred years from now or, or or more. But yeah, those are the things of science fiction. But I know that at, yeah. at, at present, you know. There's some really good things that are on the table that we're working actively with this administration on. And how do you build a conveyance facility, an alternative tunnels, if you will, around the Sacramento Bay Delta? Sacramento Bay Delta is collapsing environmentally uh, in a number of different ways. It is going to fail. It is failing. Mm -hmm. How do you fix it? Well, you start with different types of projects, one of which being water fix, California water fix, which we've been working on a couple of years. How do you take water around it, protects the fish, protects from seawater intrusion, protects from the earthquake? That makes sense. Well, a project like that's been in the works for some you know, 15 years. It would still take another 15 to 20 years to build if we started today. Mm-hmm. Then what do you do in the meantime? That's when you go to efficiency. That's when you go to alternative supplies. That's when you start doing other things that make sense for your local community. Well, much like expanding the freeway, by the time they might finish that project, the the, the demand may now have grown, and who knows where we'll be, but you have to at least be trying to keep up, I guess. That's right, but at the same time here, the last 20 years, we have doubled the population in Southern California, and we're using the same amount of water. We do a good job in Southern California about managing the resource, but we can do better. Mm-hmm. We can still do better, and that's part of the message that we utilize is we can do better, and it's not an if-or conversation. It's an and conversation. Right, right. So let's talk about your organization specifically. I know a lot of organizations that are volunteer-based, I notice there's sort of one of two things happening. Um, there's either an incredible succession plan, and they have a clear understanding that, hey, not all of us are going to be here forever, right? We want to keep this thing going. And who's going to be the next generation? Who's going to be the next people that are going to come in and help and keep this going? And then I have the other ones that are like, no, I'm not going to think about it. And, you know, one day when that leader goes, so goes that that group, right? Uh, so where do you guys fit on that you know, continuum there? <laughs> well, I wish we were that smart to really plan that all out. Um, you know, I, I have to say, I was involved with the organization as a volunteer first. Uh, you stick around long enough, you end up as uh, 
chairman of something, right, and so right. I ended up as chair of the group for about six years. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned in a six-year tenure is, yeah, we really need a succession plan here because yeah. it can't rely upon any single volunteer or group of volunteers. Yeah. So we changed the business model. We fundamentally shifted the organization and how it operates. And then, quite frankly, we were really lucky. Uh, and then we found some highly qualified water professionals that had been in the business for 30, 40 years who volunteered their service to get us up and running in the new business model. We now have taken that, and we very deliberately have to go through every year. You've got to check it just like an ind- individual company. You know, Where's the next generation coming from? Who's likely to be available? What kind of talent do we need? Right. And frankly, you know, my, the, the new chair uh, is a lady who's just coming off a two-year tenure as the chair of the State Water Association, a trade association with all water agencies in, in California. The perfect individual from Southern California perspective then to be able to go out and to lead us as chair for the next couple of years. But then with under her and working with her, who has particular talent, who has a particular interest, how do we plug them in so that they make sense and it means something to them. Mm-hmm. And as they're motivated and they're getting something personally out of it, then their time with the organization grows and their commitment to the organization grows. Is there sort of a, a an overall goal or... Uh, objective uh, for you for for the organization right now water reliability for Southern California it is that broad that is our why that is why we exist is to provide uh, an all the above approach for future generations to have a reliable water supply in Southern California and Mm -hmm. where does that then play within the larger state context so let's say that with the average person, the average business, what should they be thinking about as it relates to this, the context of this conversation and water, uh, you know, right now and maybe in the next couple of years? The principles are really mu- very much the same as they are in, in business. You know, how do you motivate your employees? In this case, it's volunteers. Because employees, as we now know in this economy, come and go on a whim. Mm-hmm. They're not tied womb to tomb like we used to see, you know, back in the, you know, generations of past. So how do you provide meaningful context for your for your members? How do you provide meaningful context and value for your volunteers? Uh, how do you give them challenges? How do you uh, bring them along so that there is a trust relation, trust-based relationship, right. that they're then willing to continue to serve and bring others to serve in future generations? Yeah. And and as was any of that different or did you feel it was a relatively uh smooth transition going from working from Southern California Edison working for a, you know sort of a large organization with I'm sure lots of bureaucracy to a volunteer organization which is much more uh, direct and nimble, right, with who you had involved with. It, it may just be part of my personal passion, but throughout my career, even with Edison, there was an awful lot of becoming involved with local community-based organizations. It became sort of a running joke that often I would become involved in things and say, yeah, I'm going to volunteer for that group. And think, oh, man, these people really need a shaking of the box, and they need to transform themselves. And so there were a lot of, of um, sort of redos. Mm-hmm. Um, the electric utility business, uh, yeah, big, stable company, Edison, with the most radical change that they've had in their 120-year history over the last 10 years. And frankly, I see the same thing coming in water. How we do water is going to fundamentally shift. That's the challenge for me. That's what gets me up in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's why I go to work. That's why I do what I do. And now, how do I bring that passion, how do I bring that understanding to others so that they, too, see the importance of what water is to the overall community we live in? Is there something from a leadership perspective that maybe you know, seems to have a very sound foundation and what you believe and, and kind of where you're going and the, and the vision that you're trying to communicate to everyone else? Is there something that it just culminate in your brain or do you feel like you had a particular mentor or learned something along the way that kind of clicked and that's what set you you know on your path it's a combination of a couple of things one you know you learn from your mistakes and boy i have made many of them <laughs> yeah. so yeah those those things are are are, are embedded uh, i've also been truly fortunate to have some really great mentors whether it was as a kid through athletics and coaching mm-hmm. up through my professional uh, experience. I have just been very fortunate to have a, a handful of people that I love and trust and who have, have imparted upon me their wisdom. And I'm just getting to that place in my life where I, now I get a chance to do that for others. 
Yeah, and I think that's so important that we have those opportunities to learn from our mistakes. We have those leaders, we have those mentors. But the other thing I, I find that uh, people that are very successful, they're also continually learning, right? They want to know what's the newest thing, maybe newest idea. It's not that you always have to be doing something new all the time, but at least be thinking about challenging your perspective, challenging where, where you might be headed and, and deciding if you're on the right path or you need to make make a, a tweak somewhere, right, to be better. That's right. Um, is there a, a book that you're reading right now or maybe one that you typically suggest people check out? There's a couple that I do. I just finished reading Elastic Thinking. Um, Elastic Thinking, okay. Leonard Minlow. Uh, it was recommended to me. I had not thought about it. He's a physicist by trade. He's done mm-hmm. books with uh, uh, Hawking and, and, and Deepak Chopra, of all things. So this right. guy, he's a physicist putting mathematics. I am not a math guy. I was promised, <laughs> that, in fact, there would be no math right. in public policy. But it gave me a different perspective, and it was paradigm shifts and how do people change? How do people it's a corny phrase of get outside the box. Right. But what's the mental process to actually go beyond where you're limited today mm-hmm. and think in a way that will bring something new to the table? Those kinds of readings, right. I crave that sort of stuff. I will read pretty much anything that somebody recommends. Well, and, and the fact that you've read it and you're promising us it won't be too much math. Anyone who's afraid of math can certainly take it. I read a book uh, a few years back, How Never to Be Wrong or something like that. And it was from a math, famous mathematician. And he said, I promise it won't be any math. Three chapters in, I'm having like flashbacks to calculus. I'm like, sweating in the cars. I'm listening to him go through this equation to explain how most of the book was in math. But there was a few moments of just deep you know, like messing up with your brain. Kind well, of and that's where his book with Deepak Chopra, they kind of like go back and forth between the spiritual and the, the provable mathematical you know, right. f- physical world. It's interesting stimulation mentally, mm-hmm. but I take and I kind of triangulate that with uh, a, a very deep um, sort of passion within uh, a religious spirituality. Uh, I, I pull that from some of the top thinkers in the world of leadership. And I again, I have a passion and, and went back and, and did master's work in leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the next generation look like? How do people emerge as leaders? And it's not about your authority. It's not about the position that you have. It's about uh, a servant-based leadership. Everybody has an ability to lead within their own right and their own sphere of influence. How do you get people to harness that and then contribute that to the community that we live in? That's really very yeah. cool for me. And a lot of that is what we started to talk about was being connected to purpose. Uh, and right. if and if they're involved with your organization, then they have a sense of exactly what they're trying to do or what your organization is trying to do. And if they're there as a volunteer, they must uh, be on board. Well, and I'm finding millennials these days, you know, they're not so much into things like political parties and institutions because there's this stigma against a lot of those. But they'll volunteer. They'll find something that's meaningful to them, and they'll mm-hmm. they'll, they'll they'll give their time, their talent, and their treasure to help their community get better. So speaking of that, how can people get a hold of you or find out more about uh, the Southern California Water Coalition? Maybe they want to volunteer, be involved. What's the best way for them to find out more? SoCalWater.org. SoCalWater.org. In fact, if you missed that, it's SoCalWater.org. That's an excellent three plus there. Very well done. Uh, But uh, Charlie, thanks so much for being on the show today and coming into the studio. I really uh, enjoyed learning more about uh, what you're doing and uh, learning more about you. A great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. Hopefully you've gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Next week, I'll be joined by Dov Barron, a consultant for Fortune 500 companies, and Milton Green, the HR director for Charter Communications. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 